for sure. And you have to have that. There's no question. You need to still have the numbers, right? Um, but if you can top and tail those numbers with a human story, that's when it goes back to memorability, right? So I'm going to remember this story or I'm going to care about this story because there was a human element to it. There was something emotional in this story that made me feel something. And that makes me remember the story. Let me give you an example. Okay, how about Nanotest is a company in our portfolio. So Nanotest, they're in the nanotechnology space. They've developed a cell that helps the body heal chronic wounds. So that's a cool story in and of itself. But what if we had a patient perspective in there? So what if the story started with someone who, because of complications of diabetes, they were about to lose their leg, but instead they were given the Nanotest cell and they started applying it and all of a sudden their chronic wounds started to heal. And then, oh my goodness, their leg is saved. This has changed this person's life forever. Now, isn't that a more compelling story, right? So if you start the story with something like that, and then you talk about what the product is, then of course you've got to have the numbers. Um, but that just makes it that much more compelling of a story. Leah? Leah Sarich? You mean the Leah Sarich? The Leah Sarich who is co-host of Breakfast TV on one of Canada's most preeminent TV networks? You mean the Leah Sarich who's now head of story at one of Canada's most productive VC firms? That Leah Sarich? Leah, what's the coolest story you ever got to report on? Oh my goodness, I am so, I mean, this is a hard one because I've worked for so long and I did so many cool stories and I was on so many cool beats. Um, from the very beginning, I was an arts and entertainment reporter uh, and I got to interview some really cool celebrities. Uh, Christopher Clubber was a standout because, I mean, he's such a legend, you know, like everybody's seen The Sound of Music. And then he told me he didn't want to talk about that movie. Didn't want to talk about it. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I asked him one question, like, I know, right? Like, why? And so then I asked him, I said, so how do you choose the script you're going to work on? And he was like, oh, sometimes you just have to look away from the script, darling, and you have to just take the paycheck because my lifestyle costs a bomb. And I thought, are you seriously telling me this? You know, we're recording, right? So yeah, he was wonderful, extremely charming and lovely and generous. So that was a standout for sure. But then when I moved into health reporting, I mean, th there was just over and over again, so many incredible stories that I used to always think we're really going to give patients that were suffering some hope, right, for the future. And I remember realizing that this is really impactful, this work that I'm doing. So I've loved that on a pretty much daily basis. Um, and then for because television, of course, you've got a three-hour live show that you're doing every day. So the variety is what I love. So you go from interviewing a premier or a mayor, and then you're talking to a parenting expert, and then it's, you know, doing yourself birds, uh, bird boxes, and then all of a sudden... You've got like Harry Potter kids that are coming on the show. I mean, it was just wild. So I, I loved the variety. The kids in the Harry Potter costumes must have been such a great touch. But how are you doing? I'm doing great. I mean, it's freezing here in Calgary today. I think it's minus 45 with the wind chill, but I'm from Saskatchewan. So this is no big deal. Um, no, I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Well, minus 45 is something that I hope our dear listeners never experience. Hi. My name's Jeff, and this is How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of healthcare. In this series, we chat with amazing individuals to find out their secrets and stories so that you can learn the skills and thought processes necessary to help make a future where people can live healthier, longer, and better quality lives. Usually, Leah, 
I leave this specific question to the middle of our conversations, but I really wanted to throw this one right at you. So, if you were to explain what you do to a five-year-old, how would you do it? That's easy. I tell stories. That's what I do. And you know, five-year-olds are really good at knowing what a good story is. So uh, it's pretty easy. I tell stories. So I guess maybe maybe a good question from, from here is, what was your favorite story when you were five? When I was five, anything my mom read to me, truthfully. I mean, she was a wonderful storyteller. She got me hooked on books and reading and literature. I also have an English degree, so that's a huge passion of mine. Um, so yeah, anything that my mom read me, I loved. So from the start, when there was little five-year-old Leah, did that five-year-old Leah want to go into journalism? Or was it something that you kind of grew as a passion as you got your English degree? Uh, a bit of both, really. So yes, I do have an English degree as well as a journalism degree. And that came about because I remember thinking I loved literature and reading and books. And so I thought, you know, that makes sense. So I did the English degree and I thought I was probably going to go on to be an academic and be a professor because I also love to teach. I come from a family of educators. So I thought that would make sense to be a professor of English literature, but my minor was in drama. So I'm also a very performative kind of person. I like to chat and I'm very outgoing. And, and so I thought, hey, what if I put these two things together? And that's how I came up with broadcast journalism. So that's the mm -hmm. route I took. You told me off the air that you had initially started in the industry working with much music and that you were really just paying your dues, doing as anyone does, trying to make sure that you get your foot into the door before you got to where you wanted. Was health journalism something that you wanted to do the entire way or was it something that was more serendipitous? Yeah, really find your own way. I mean, you have to start small in journalism because it is a skill set that needs to be learned. And there's a lot of things to learn. And you start small and you work your way up steadily. And so, you know, I loved arts and entertainment and culture. So I started there in that space. So I that's how I landed at Much Music. That was actually my an internship that I got through the University of Regina, which was amazing. And then I got a job there. And then I did another internship and then got another job there. So just baby steps along the way. Um, but really you, you just have to be sort of open and curious and, and take whatever sort of lands in your lap. And if you're talking about health, for example, I mean, I didn't choose to be a health specialist. I, I was actually working in arts and entertainment reporting and I had a news director come up to me and say, you know, I'd really like a health beat for this six o'clock newscast. And I think you'd be great at it. Can you do it? And I just said, uh, sure. Okay. And I jumped in and fell madly in love. With the beat so that's how that came about and it's been about 19 years if we're counting <laughs> correct so what's kept you in this space for so long apart from the shackles underneath your desk <laughs> no i love health reporting it became a huge passion of mine and still influences a lot of the things that i do today um health reporting specifically i was i you know i i'm a very very curious person and so, and I really love to learn new things. That's one of the reasons why I became a journalist. I like to learn something new every day. Uh, and you get to do that as a journalist. And I also really like, I think I mentioned this, you know, I come from this family of educators. So uh, there's this teaching sort of part of my personality where I like to teach people things. And, you know, in, as a health specialist, that's what you're doing every day is you're teaching somebody something that they can really apply to their lives. It has a huge impact. In TV land, we call it, you know, news you can use. Uh, so I would, in health, you know, you're definitely giving someone information that they can apply to their own lives or their partner's lives or their child's lives or their friend's lives. 
um, it's, it's information that can really be impactful for the audience. So I love that. Mm-hmm. And I, I really share that sentiment in, I guess, hoping to make a positive impact in others' lives through teaching, through educating as well. Um, but it's like health is unique to some extent because I mean, maybe or maybe it's not unique, but there's there's such subject matter expertise that needs mm-hmm. to go into that often you're interacting with the same clinicians, uh, physicians, researchers over and over again. You've mm-hmm. done work other than health reporting. How does interacting with people in the health space differ from interacting with people in other spaces that you worked with? You're absolutely right. There is something unique in health journalism, because if you think about it, the stakes are pretty high. You know, if you're getting this information wrong and people apply it to their lives, I mean, something bad could actually happen. Right. So um, but what I loved about health journalism was that knowledge translation bit. You know, you are learning something that's very hard to understand and you have to translate it. You need to learn this new language that they're speaking. I loved that challenge every single day. I love that. Um, And then. I really loved, as you mentioned, you end up integrating a lot of the same people over and over again. And I loved building trust with these people, with these researchers, scientists, physicians. I loved building that relationship with them so that they trusted you to get the information correct. And so I love that. And that gave me access to incredible stories that other people may not have gotten. Um, and so it was, it was really wonderful to build those relationships and that trust. And to be able to have that incredible impact on our viewers, because I knew I was giving them information that they could apply to their lives every day. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit more about how important that trust that you mentioned is and how you maintain it, especially in the face of such rigorous demands with regard to pace of story in journalism? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, fundamentally, you don't want to get it wrong, right? And so... You just don't want to give information to people that is incorrect or that could be misleading. I mean, if you look at the pandemic, there was so much misinformation out there and it had a huge impact on how people were living their lives and how they were making decisions about what they were going to do for their family that could have serious consequences. So for, you know, you need to take that relationship with the physicians, researchers, scientists very seriously. You need to understand that they're taking a big, you know, leap of faith with you. Um, and you really want to do your very, very best to understand the material that's being offered to you and get it right uh, and explain it in a way that gives people the context they need to at home. Like, you know, people who lay people who are trying to understand this, they need some context sometimes as to what you're talking about and why and how you need to think about it, you know. Um, so it, it is a very unique space to to work in. But I loved it. So I know that there's a bit of a generalized structure that journalists use in order to make stories that are quite complicated, more relatable to especially lay audiences. Can you tell me more about that? Mm-hmm. Yep. There is a, a, you know, we can get into sort of the aspects of storytelling that I think are most useful and impactful, but one of them is to make it personal. So often as a health journalist, you want to start with a patient. I would often um, there's, you know, various people in the field that I would reach out to and I say, you know, I love this research. I, I love this new paper that you put out, but I need a human perspective on this. So can you get me a patient, you know, from the study? Can you get me a patient that you've tried this on that would be able to talk about this? Or someone that is maybe has this, you know, whatever the case may be, if it's diabetes or who has had migraines or, you know, who has whatever the case may be. Give me a patient so I can start with them. So there's almost like an access point 
So as, as much as I could, I would try to start my health stories with the patient perspective. You know, Sally has diabetes and, you know, she has this problem every day and it's very challenging, but there's this new research that came out that could give her some hope for the future. And then we talk about the research, the new findings, and then we come back to the patient saying, yeah, you know, this, ha this is giving me so much hope for the future of my life with diabetes. And I, I can't wait to see how this is going to turn out in the future. So that was a structure that I would try to go after every time. Um, and, you know, you have to train some of the physicians and scientists that you work with on a regular basis. because They'll be like, we found this and this and this and this. I'll say, okay, yeah, I have two minutes to tell this story. So what, is the, what, if, what do you think is the most important thing for me to get across? And so they would say, it. I was like, okay, now tell me that again. So I understand it. You're not there yet. And they'd be like, oh, okay, well, it's this. And I'm like, okay, we're almost there. Say it to me again. And then I would get it. And then I would repeat it back to them. I'm like, okay, so am I understanding this correctly? Is this what you found and you discovered? Yes. Okay, great. Then we've got the clips we need. So mm -hmm. yes, there is a bit of a format there. Mm -hmm. And I guess combining all of that in terms of what you've explained to me about health journalism so far, it seems like the main difficult points about health journalism are getting, getting things right because mm -hmm. you don't want people are uh, explaining things in an understandable mm -hmm. fashion and making sure that there's context or some relatability or a person behind it. And then also moving at speed because, you know, more stories come up, you know, every day and you don't necessarily have the time to refine your knowledge uh, to the nth degree like you normally would in research. Is that correct? Yep, that's true. But um, if you're, you know, over time, you sort of develop a foundation of knowledge that you can draw upon, right? So that's another reason why that's, that's helpful if you stay on the same beat for a long time. And you're hmm. seeing less and less of that, unfortunately, in, in journalism, because there's just not the budgets to have a dedicated reporter to work on a certain beat. But when you're on a beat, you get a body of knowledge and that gives that helps you get the context that helps you put things in perspective. That helps you ask the right questions that helps you know the experts you need to ask the questions of. So that that body of knowledge is is sort of built up slowly over time. So that is a wonderful thing. If, you, if you're on a beach and you sort of have developed this foundation, then that allows you to move a lot faster. Mm -hmm. How long would you say that it took you to establish a rapport with the clinicians with whom you worked and to ensure that you could feel comfortable in your role as a health specialist? I'm asking this because I assume that you weren't necessarily just comfortable right from the start because it's an entirely new space that you had to learn from the get-go and communicate as an expert in. Absolutely. Um, you know, usually it would be two or three interviews with the same person and then they'd be like, oh, because they would watch to see, did she get it right? Did she understand the story? Oh, she did. Okay, let's talk to her again. All right, she got it right again. Now I trust her. All right, and then they would phone me if they're like, oh, I've got this great research I want to tell you about. Or if something just broke in the news and I need some context or some expertise in the area, I'd be like, hey, I just got this story. Did you see this coming out? Can you comment on it? Yes. So um, it happens quickly uh, if you get it right. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, it's similar to a lot of roles in even the VC industry right now where you have a first relationship, you work with them on one-offs. And then once you build a relationship, um, you have that trust off of which you can I guess, build further collaborations or long-standing relationships together. Is mm -hmm. that right? Absolutely. A lot of it is just relationship building. 
Um, I like to say I specialize in building, you know, meaningful relationships because that's where all the good stuff is. You know, that's where you get to tell the best stories when you have a a good relationship, when you've got a trusted relationship with someone. That's where the best stories come from, certainly. And then I I guess in terms of how you got from working as someone on, you know, the morning show and the health beat uh, to work with Thin Air Labs now, um, you, you... attributed that change to what you learned as a health specialist in the mm-hmm. journalism sector. Was there a specific story that triggered that change? Or was it kind of a sentiment that grew over time because of a trend that you noticed in the story that you saw? Well, first of all, it's a common pivot for journalists to go once they sort of wrap up their journalism career, they often go into communications in some way, shape or form. Um, so that's a very common pivot that many journalists will make. Um, so I was looking at communications positions in various different fields. Um, but I, I never thought I would hear again, another story of just being open to what could possibly be. I never thought I would end up in venture capital. I didn't even know what it was really. Um, and so, but it was, you know, I had a, a colleague that reached out to me and she just said, you know, what are you going to do now? I was like, I don't know. I'm taking a bunch of readings. We'll see what happens. And she said, well, have you heard of Thinner Labs? And I said, no, I haven't. What's that about? She's like, well, it's a venture capital firm. And I was like, oh, I don't know anything about that. And she's like, just take a meeting. I was like, okay. So we had a few meetings. And then it was their focus in health, really, that really um, attracted me. And, you know, their their thesis that they really want to create meaningful human impact. That was very attractive to me. And also their entire business model was very attractive to me because, you know, I had this crazy idea of what venture capital was from the movies, like most other people. You know, these big scary investors come in and they invest in all these companies, expecting most of them to fail and only have a couple of winners. I was like, that doesn't sound very good. That didn't sit super well with me. But Thinner Labs is entirely different. Um, they really have this model based on the notion that they want all the companies they invest in to win. And they've set up their model to do that. So we believe that ventures need a lot more than just capital to be successful. They need a lot of help and expertise. And that's why we've developed some startup services to go along with that. Um, So we really are about trying to make sure that all of the companies uh, are successful. And so far, they are. Uh, So far, we've had no fails. And and that is a remarkable thing. That is quite unusual. And so, I mean, I'm sure it will happen eventually, but so far, so good. And, and it's really about, you know, that, that expertise that we're sharing with these startups as they grow to overcome some of those very common obstacles, you know, and we've got a team of people of experienced entrepreneurs that have been there and done that. And so they want to help these founders, you know, get over those common obstacles. So um, that model really attracted me. And, and of course, this idea of creating this meaningful human impact. And, you know, half of the Thin Air Labs fund one portfolio, they're health companies. And so once again, I'm attracted to telling those kinds of stories and I've got the background to do that. So I love to tell these health stories. And so that was really what attracted me. Mm-hmm. So what do you actually do with Inner Labs? So I tell stories across the board. So both sides of Inner Labs for both the venture side and for the startup services side. And that's really about just helping people um, understand what our founders are doing. And why people should care about that. I mean, that's kind of journalism 101. Like, why do I care about this? Why should I mm-hmm. care about this? Tell me why. Um, and so that's what I'm doing, you know, for the founders in our portfolio. I do a regular uh, series that are, we call Venture Profiles, where I uh, get a video done with some of the founders in the portfolio. 
it's an opportunity for them to talk about their startup and their business and the kind of impact they want to have on the world. So I do that. I write blog posts, all same thing, all in some of the founders in, in the portfolio. Uh, and then on the services side, it's kind of a similar thing. You know, I'm trying to celebrate the founders that we're helping, uh, helping them grow. And then I want to make sure that founders know that these services exist out there. Uh, you know, if you need help, you know, we can help you. We can help you build your business. We can help you overcome those very common obstacles that you think are, you know, so terrifying. We've got the experts that can help you do that. So I get to tell those stories. And and then a lot of it is some thought leadership too. You know, we have a, a series called Zero to Seed where we're just putting really some of that news you can use information out there to founders so that they've got uh, maybe some help along the way. They've got some like, things to think about as they're building their startup and information that they might still, they might find useful as they're building. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I, I guess part of you, your work, as you mentioned, might be helping some startups perfect their pitch so they're able to raise funds to succeed. What are some of the major difficulties that some of these startups face? And I guess, are there common stumbling blocks that you try to help correct? For example, using too much jargon or not necessarily using relatable enough language or the story structure that you highlighted? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when it comes to storytelling, there's some fundamentals that you really need to get down there. And you know, a pitch is no different. Right. Mm -hmm. So you really need to be able to explain to people, why do I need to care about this? Right. I always encourage them to make it personal or emotional as well. You know, remember when we were talking about a health story, you start with that patient perspective off the top. So I like to say I encourage them to do the same thing in their pitch, you know, make it personal. Like, why did you start this startup or, you know, who are you going to impact with this startup? Can you make it personal? Because when something's personal or emotional, then people remember it because you've had an impact on them. You've made them feel something. So that is a very impactful thing for founders to think of when they're pitching. Um, and then fundamentally, you're absolutely right when it comes to the jargon. So if you're saying, why do I care about this? If you can't understand what they're selling or what, they're found, what their startup's all about, if you don't understand it, then you're not going to care about it, right? So you need to be able to distill it down into an easily accessible story that you can tell quickly. So those are the basic sort of storytelling components that I encourage them to have. Mm -hmm. I mean, to, to give you a little pushback on the, I guess, personal and emotional component, when we think of the impact that, I guess, uh, health tech may have, for example, um, on patients' lives, some of those features or factors are uh, quantifiable in terms of numbers of patient lives saved, uh, or, for example, number of healthcare dollars saved that can be reallocated to more patient care. Why exactly does, I guess, personal experience or a personal emotional flair to this matter when you're thinking specifically of impact and survivability of these startups? Is it something more of a human tweak in being able to, you know, touch the human aspect of the investor? And do you see that this more human impact actually makes any difference in these pitches? Because I, I think that a lot of some people might be predisposed to think that, you know, generally for startups or for pitches, you might want to just focus on the hard data, which is what people think they're looking for. For sure. And you have to have that. There's no question. You need to still have the numbers, right? Um, but if you can top and tail those numbers with a human story, that's when it goes back to memorability, right? So I'm going to remember this story or I'm going to care about this story 
because there was a human element to it. There was something emotional in this story that made me feel something. And that makes me remember the story. Let me give you an example. Okay, how about Nanotest is a company in our portfolio. So Nanotest, they're in the nanotechnology space. They've developed a cell that helps the body heal chronic wounds. So that's a cool story in and of itself. But what if we had a patient perspective in there? So what if the story started with someone who, because of complications of diabetes, they were about to lose their leg, but instead they were given the nanotest cell and they started applying it and all of a sudden their chronic wounds started to heal. And then, oh my goodness, their leg is saved. This has changed this person's life forever. Now, isn't that a more compelling story, right? So if you start the story with something like that, and then you talk about what the product is, then of course you've got to have the numbers. Um, but that just makes it that much more compelling of a story. Leah, with a pitch like that, if you wanted to sell me the Eiffel Tower, I'd gladly buy it. In all seriousness, though, you went from a career in journalism serving the public to now a career in communications working with venture capital. How do you feel about this? Well, first of all, it goes back to what I said earlier. Many journalists make the transition to communications. But you're right. We do have a little say, oh, you've gone over to the dark side. Yep, yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, that is, you know, something that I hear often. But but for me, for my narrative, it is all about the impact, right? So how can I have an incredible impact on the world, on the society? And, you know, it's by, I truly believe it's by telling some of these incredible stories so that we can get these startups off the ground. People can care about them. Investors can invest in them. And then these companies can grow into something that is going to have an incredible impact on the world. Um, you know, when you talk about this dark side, there's, it's about scalability, right? So if you really want to have incredible human impact, you need to make money at the same time. You got to keep the lights on. You got to be able to build this organization so that it becomes globally competitive. Can't do that if you're not making any money. So at Thinner Labs, we fundamentally believe you can do both. You can make money and you can make impact at the same time. So, you know, it's about how are you going to do that? So for me, if I can play a part in creating that incredible human impact at scale, then uh, I mean, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. If I can make sure that companies like Nanotest, if there's more people that all of a sudden have access to this cell so they don't lose their leg, I mean, that's incredible. That's amazing. Uh, and even more broadly, if I can, you know, contribute to the diversification of the economy in Alberta, for example, that's incredible. And all of a sudden means there's more stuff happening here in Alberta. So maybe my kids will come back to Alberta and, and build a career here because there's more options for them uh, in, in Alberta, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can have impact in this space. And it's just a question of scalability. Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree with you. And I, I understand where you're coming from in terms of being able to make sustainable, scalable change and VC being a great vehicle for that. I guess, jumping off of that thought, um, how have you reflected on yourself to have changed since you started working within our labs in comparison to before when you're working in broadcast journalism, unless the mentality is exactly the same? You know, it's pretty similar. You know, I stay pretty focused on telling stories. Uh, I talked a little bit about learning a new language when I went into health. Um, I've had to learn several new languages here in the BC space, right? Because you've got to learn startup language. You've got to learn some tech language. You've got to learn some investing language. Um, so I've learned some new languages, uh, but I take the same uh, approach, which is, you know, I got to learn these new languages so that I can do the knowledge translation required 
to make sure that everybody understands the stories that we're telling, the stories of these founders building these incredible companies that are going to have a huge impact on the world. So it's a very similar sort of skill set. It's just applied in a different area. Mm -hmm. And how did you go about learning those languages? Is it through diffusion in working with the same experts every day on ongoing fashion? Or were there specific resources that you went to? Because some of this, so some of the languages are difficult to, to grasp. Mm -hmm. And, it's, and it's amazing that you're able to synthesize everything at the same time. To be clear, I'm still learning these languages. So let's be clear. Oh, that's an ongoing process. And you're right. They're really hard to learn. Um, but I'm very inspired to learn them because I know this is the way that we affect the change that we want to make in the world, right? So um, it's, it's still a huge learning curve and I'm still learning it. Um, but it goes back to that notion of me wanting to learn something new every day. I do. I do. Every day I'm learning something new and I'm challenged by that. And I love that experience. Um, so it is something that you, you have to learn. And I think really one of the best ways to learn it is to just do it and to be in it and to mm -hmm. listen to the people, to talk to the people, to be in at all of the events and, and just to absorb and learn and have that open mindset where you're learning constantly. That learning mindset is essential. So you need to be open, you need to be willing to learn, and you just need to dig in. Journalism is becoming increasingly hard to get into and to maintain a career in. So what have you seen, Leah? Have you seen young journalists tend to go the way of venture capital and communications? Or have you seen them sustain that path, that more original path into journalism overall? I still think there's a bit of both. Um, but I think, I think, you know, first of all, you need to understand that, you know, journalism is essential for a free and de democratic society. Like we need to protect journalism. It is essential for the way that we want to live. Um, so, but the thing is with journalism is that I don't think a lot of people understand that, you know, being a journalist, these are skilled professionals. They have to be trained. They have to get experience. They have to be mentored by seasoned journalists. And this takes time and money. So we need, as consumers of journalism, to get our head around the fact that we need to be able to pay for this content. So we can't expect it to keep uh, to be free, you know, on Facebook. And we just can't expect that. That is not a reasonable expectation if we want good journalism, which we need. And we have to decide as a community, as a country, that this is, in fact, worth spending money on. This is necessary for the future of our civilization and our society. So these seasoned journalists have to be paid appropriately. So we as consumers, yes, we need to get our head around the idea that we need to pay for this content. Now, that model could look a little bit different, right? So there's always the subscription model and there's the online publications that are, you know, not paywalls and things like that. If you want to read this article, you need to pay. Um, so I think they're still working out the model there. Um, but I think it's worth, uh, worth doing clearly because we need good journalism in this country to hold those people in power to accounts, to make sure that we're getting the information to the people uh, that they need. You know, I, I think back to the pandemic and I think, my goodness, these journalists are working so hard to get the latest information that is changing constantly out to the people who need it. And, you know, this is the kind of work that we need to support with our dollars every day. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do agree with you in the fact that journalists have an outsized and extremely important impact in our society. Uh, in 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 any democracy overall, but I guess how do we better equip journalists um, who don't feel supported by their employers to make their transition to telling stories for impact in other ways, such as what you're doing right now? 
is there any way that they can take concrete steps to help, you know, companies tell their stories? Or is it just a matter of reaching out to startups to help how they can and see where things go? Well, I think there's an awareness building, um, certainly that, you know, for example, in BC, that actually getting these stories up there is useful and it's helpful and it's important because people need to sort of care about what we're doing. Um, and they need to understand the impact of this space. So I think, you know, venture capital, they're just starting to realize, oh, actually, you know, maybe having a storyteller or somebody on staff that can get these stories out there, that can tell these stories, this is actually useful. Um, so I think they're starting to get some awareness around that and how compelling and how useful these stories can be. Um, I think that's coming. And I think you're, you're going to see a lot more of that in the future. I think there's going to be a lot more VC firms that will have not necessarily head of story like myself, but they'll have someone that is in charge of putting these stories out there. And they're not just a marketer that's, you know, putting stories out there to generate leads. Like this is someone who is making people understand why they need to care about the work that we're doing. So I, I think that I think that's actually coming. I do think people are starting to understand the impact and the importance of telling stories in this space. What would you say is the difference between what a marketer does and what someone who is able to tell stories effectively with a journalism background does? Um, I get asked this question all the time and I sort of give a different answer all the time because I'm still learning what the difference is too. Um, but, you know, um, I think when it comes to marketing, you're, you're generally trying to generate leads, for example, in our space, you know, if you're generating leads for our services line, for example. Um, but you have to be really good at storytelling in that space as well. It's just you're kind of doing, you're kind of going for a different outcome, right? So if you're just getting people to sign up for a service or buy the product, that's a certain kind of storytelling. Um, I think the storytelling that I do is sort of bigger, broader picture storytelling. It's, it's you know, why as a society do we need to care about this? Why as um, a country or as a province do we need to understand the impact that the work that we're doing could have on our economic diversity, on bringing talent and attracting talent to the city, on creating jobs for people to get once they graduate, uh, to creating options, you know, in the marketplace. So I think there's a slight difference there, but it's kind of just based on outcome. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.